Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. And today I'd like to start out by pointing out that you have an opportunity, if you are a beginner and you're interested in learning more about cryptocurrency, go to consensusnetwork.io, join my newsletter, and also there are some very good tutorials on there to get you started in buying uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of the other things off of Coinbase and Coinbase Plus, uh, how to do some trading, some basic trades, etc., using some of the different platforms out there. So go ahead and, again, check that out, consensusnetwork.io, and um, hopefully that, that'll get you started, at least if, you're, if you haven't gotten in the game. You know, today's show is really interesting. You know, as, as, as Bitcoin, blockchain, and other distributed ledger technologies become more mature, and what I mean by that is they become, I guess, you know, this is a relatively new asset class. So as they become more mature, you're going to see a lot of the same financial models as you do for traditional assets like real estate and stocks and precious metals, all that stuff. And uh, the thing about those models is those models have been around for a long time. And let me give you an example. The earliest recognized futures trading exchange was actually the Dohima Rice Exchange, and that was established in 1710. And of course, now we've got the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, and it's selling Bitcoin futures contracts. So these these products and things are, you know, they go back a long way. We're just plugging in different uh, different products and commodities for them. So, you know, not too far in the future, uh, you will um, see other products uh, in Bitcoin in particular treated just like uh, any other commodity, like Bitcoin will be treated like any other commodity in the financial markets. I truly believe that. Now, whether that's good or bad for crypto can be argued. I mean, a lot of people think it's bad. I mean, but the irony is that the very system to which Bitcoin was a response, which was sort of the big banks and, you know, 2008, the meltdown and the libertarian streak and everything, Bitcoin was a response to the big banks, but the big banks will also be the reason that the value of Bitcoin explodes over the next few years, which I find incredibly ironic. But, hey... Um, I mean, I, I'm a believer in this thing, so I'm, I'm not complaining. I think that that is probably the only way that the price is going to go way up. And obviously, the infrastructure is being built to do just that. So obviously, lending is a big part of the traditional financial world. Um, and it's already become an industry within the world of digital assets. And one of those trailblazing companies leading the charge in this area of lending uh, is BlockFi. BlockFi is a company that is supported by a lot of big players, including Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital. And if you are a crypto hodler like me, then you are going to love this discussion because it's a really a great option to hold on to something tax-free and still use it to keep your money moving in and through other investments. So when we come back, uh, Zach Prince with BlockFi is going to explain how it works. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. 
And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Consensus Network is Zach Prince. Uh, Zach is the founder and CEO of BlockFi. And BlockFi is a company that provides loans backed by cryptocurrency that you own yourself. And um, BlockFi is actually a, one of a, a number of, of lending companies out there right now, but uh, has picked up some serious traction um, and has been has had some significant investments from some big players in including Mike Novogratz from Galaxy Digital. Prior to starting BlockFi, he led business and development teams at Orchid Platform, a broker-dealer and RIA in the online lending sector, and Zibi, uh, an online consumer lender. He graduated uh, from Texas, uh, St Texas State University. And uh, Zach, welcome to Consensus Network. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, we, we, started <laughs> we almost started the interview without pushing the play button here. Because it sounds like you know you and I have a little bit of overlap in terms of our background, even though I'm, I like to think I I don't like to think, but I think I'm probably the oldest person I interview you know in, in this whole crypto space at 45. I'm like old an old guy here, but give us a little bit of your background what, and and ultimately what led you to cryptocurrency. Yeah, sure, and I think uh, there there's a few old people in crypto. We've thought about <laughs> doing a post at BlockFi on like a you know. You always see Forbes 30 under 30 type stuff. We want to do like a top five over 50 in crypto. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so my background, uh, most recently prior to starting BlockFi, well, I've always been in the venture-backed technology company world. I was originally in ad tech, but then most recently prior to starting BlockFi, I was in the online lending sector. Um, and at two different companies, uh, I interacted with a lot of the largest online lenders um, who oftentimes enabled retail investors to participate on their platform alongside institutional investors. But I was mainly interfacing with the institutional investors. And one of the things we were about to chat about prior to the pressing the record button was how I had a similar idea to you and started writing a, a personal finance blog back in 2014 to try and expose some of these different types of investing platforms to more people because I thought they were great options. And, uh, you know, it would be really beneficial to have as part of a, a smart personal financial investment strategy. And that's what led me to start buying Bitcoin. Really? <laughs> because <clears throat> I was thinking about, you know, how to, how to allocate my own personal finances. And at the time, Bitcoin had uh, gone up to a thousand, but it had gone then down to 300. Um, and I looked at it and I thought that this was a, a really interesting investment and started investing personally. And then at the beginning of last year, uh, a few things happened, which led me to, uh, you know, decide that I needed to be involved in the sector full time, and ultimately started BlockFi. Right. So you're writing about things like Lending Tree and, and or not Lending Tree. What is it? Some of these peer to peer. Uh, uh, yeah. So like Fundrise, Fundrise, and right? Mogul and Peer Street and Realty Shares and P2BI and uh, Personal Capital. Right. So uh, some some of the crowdfunding stuff too. Crowdfunding, mm -hmm. Robo Advisory. Uh, personal financial management tools, um, all of these new kind of like broadly categorized as fintech uh, companies that are doing innovative things that are often cheaper or provide, uh, you know, benefits that didn't exist um, prior to these companies coming along. 
So you mentioned that that's kind of what got you into ultimately, I guess, you know, Bitcoin to start. How did you first learn about Bitcoin and what was your initial response? I mean, like, I mean, it's still kind of a leap, right? I mean, it's still going from fiat peer to peer lending to crypto in what year again? It was it was 2000. Late 2014. Yeah, I mean, that's early, early, right? That's early. Yeah, it's so, it's early, it's early yeah. for us. It's right. not as early as uh, as some people, but right. um, I basically heard about it at a uh, some type of networking event. I can't remember exactly, you know, what it was, but it was fintech related or lending related, and somebody kind of mentioned it, you know, off the cuff like a stock tip. You yeah, know, he bought it in Bitcoin, and I was like, no. But at the time, I was trying to write about new and interesting things that were happening, so I started researching a little bit, and ultimately decided to uh, to buy some, and then ended up writing about Coinbase and uh, just starting to go down the you know proverbial rabbit hole that people talk about in crypto. And then shortly after investing in Bitcoin, I learned about Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And I made an analogy in my head at the time that Ethereum was going to be like the iPhone and Bitcoin was like the BlackBerry. Uh, <laughs> and so I bought some Ethereum too, which you know at the time was around, I think, uh, $10. And then it went down to $5 and I, I felt like I was a complete idiot for, you know, throwing my money away, but um, I, I didn't sell it. And then at a certain point, my wife said, you're talking about this stuff all the time and you need to, you know, find someone else to talk about it with because I'm not nearly as interested in cryptocurrency <laughs> as you have, as you have become. And so I started going to cryptocurrency specific meetups and all throughout 2016, I was going to these meetups and then, at the end of 2016 and into early 2017, the composition of people that were at these meetups started to change. And it changed from being primarily hardcore libertarians and computer scientists that were the earliest adopters in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency world to also including some venture capitalists, some Wall Street guys. And then in early 2017, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance was announced and companies like Microsoft and uh, you know, other big names, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies were uh, starting blockchain initiatives. And I was like, okay, this is, this is real now. And this is going to go mainstream. And then the market cap crossed $100 billion. And I was like, okay, now it's really real. Um, and then I listed Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, as assets on a financial statement that I submitted to a bank that I was <laughs> applying for a loan with. And they accused me of being involved in some illicit activities and almost didn't oh, want to wow. give me a loan because no I own Bitcoin. And that was my light bulb moment for starting BlockFi. Um, you know, just like so many other sectors in the online lending world where banks were not as active and there was a need for these specialty finance companies, often enabled by technology, to step in and provide debt capital in certain markets, crypto was going to have that same need. And, and we started BlockFi with the idea of, uh, you know, meeting that need. Something that you said, I think, is really interesting, because when you look at the evolution of what has happened in this space, you're talking about 2014. And I remember listening to um, listening to some podcasts that were in my, you know, in my niche, you know, these alternative investing spaces. And they would talk about Bitcoin, but they would talk about it as a big joke. Right. Yep. And so this is the danger of, of having sort of a closed loop and listening to the same people talk about the same thing, because sometimes you could just totally miss out. I mean, if I was at that party that you were at and somebody gave me that tip, I probably would have said, hey, well, maybe I'll just, you know, grab a little bit, whatever. 
But the other thing that I think that's really interesting about what you said is that, you know, at two th- in 2014, people were still thinking of this as something that could, like Bitcoin in specific, is something that could truly go to zero. Now, people still say that, but I don't think they really believe it anymore. I don't think very many people truly believe that Bitcoin is going to zero anymore. Would you agree with that? Uh, anybody who understands what they're talking about certainly doesn't hold that opinion anymore. Right. Um, Bitcoin has quote unquote died so many times before <laughs> only to not go to zero. Uh, and actually, if you zoom out on the chart enough, keep uh, keep growing tremendously. And it's also very well regulated in certain markets and traded on major exchanges and has the support of uh, major financial institutions and investors. Um, so the odds that it goes to zero, we think at BlockFi, we think are you know effectively zero. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's any chance yeah, that, that happens. Exactly, exactly. And and to that extent, what I've said in the past is particularly when you know the CBOE get, started getting involved and you get futures and now you got ETFs on the table. Once that adoption occurs, this is something that's around for at least a hundred years. I mean, that's that's not it's not going away. So let's talk a little bit about BlockFi, right? So. So you, you're writing this newsletter, uh, this fintech stuff, and you have this aha moment because somebody thinks you might be a criminal involved with Silk Road or something like that. You already had some experience in the lending space, which obviously, again, one of those, you know, real uh, things that I always tell people. It's like, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, work, work somewhere that's interesting and start thinking about what the inefficiencies are. And that's exactly what you did. So tell us a little bit about that journey to BlockFi. Yeah, sure. So we started with, you know, the simple idea of there's going to be a need for debt, capital and lending in the crypto asset class, just like there will, just like there is in every other asset class. Um, And then we did some work on the legal and regulatory side to try and figure out what product we could launch that would fit into a pre-established box. Uh, Because the last thing we wanted to do is launch a product that would carry, you know, handcuff risk for myself or anybody else affiliated with the company. And we also wanted to be able to raise institutional capital uh, venture on the, on the equity side and uh, debt on the lending side to support our efforts. And what we found out was that um, using the assets as collateral was one, something that there was a lot of demand for and two, something that we could put into a regulatory box that made sense and that we could get licensed for and that we could get capital backing for. And so that's what we ultimately decided to start with. And that's the majority of what we do today. So you can think of it like a home equity loan, except instead of home equity, it's crypto equity. So individuals or businesses that own Bitcoin or Ether or now Litecoin as well and want some liquidity but don't want to sell that asset can borrow against the value of it. And BlockFi facilitates that as a as a lender. And then over time, we're going to introduce more products to the market as well. Walk us through what that looks like right now. I mean, so obviously it's it's pretty straightforward and conceptually. You've got collateralized debt. Basically, you've got assets, digital assets that have a value, and um, you uh, somebody comes to a website, and then they. Why don't why don't you walk through and kind of explain? You know, if somebody's sitting on hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin, they don't want to sell because of tax purposes. Um, how would how would they do this? Sure. So they they come to our site. They uh, you know create an account and submit an application. It takes uh, about a minute. We basically collect you know information to verify the identity of someone. We need that to check that uh, 
you know, they're not on any sanctions lists, et cetera, and adhere to our KYC and AML um, guidelines. Uh, but that's it. We don't check uh, credit scores. We don't do a hard or soft pull on people's credit. And so, you know, we approve um, individuals that come to the site in minutes and they're able to borrow up to 50% of the value. So if someone had $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, they could borrow up to 50,000 USD. And so they would submit that application, get their loan offer. <clears throat> right now, for uh, that dollar amount, the cost would be less than 10% annual interest. It'd be about 9.5% uh, APR, and it's interest-only uh, payments uh, on the loans. And we could go from you know application to loan offer received, to loan offer signed, and dollars in someone's bank account in under 30 minutes and, and have uh, before. So this is interesting, actually, because I just, you know, I just looked at your website. And so those numbers are a little bit different because it, you, they must have changed recently. Because mm -hmm. before I saw uh, 35% LTV, 35% uh, loan to value. Did that did that change recently or is that or am I missing something there? Yeah, a couple of things have uh, have changed recently and they're they're changing pretty quickly as we add more uh, capital providers to uh, the back end of our company, we are increasing the loan to value ratio. Um, volatility in Bitcoin has also come down a lot, which is one of the inputs in terms of how much we're willing to uh, lend. Um, and we're also raising capital at a lower cost as our company has been around longer, which means we can pass through cost savings. So yes, over the last month, we've increased the loan to value ratio and reduced the interest rate that we're charging for new borrowers that are using Bitcoin as collateral. And so right now you've got, you said it was Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Correct. Are there, and uh, Ethereum any... and Litecoin are still at that 35% loan to value ratio today. Okay. Got it. Got it. So Bitcoin's the one that's at 50 and plans for, I assume just kind of plans for ongoing expansion of, of, you know, other digital assets as it makes sense. You know, what threshold or what things are you looking at before you might consider using using a particular digital asset as collateral? Uh, so we look at uh, primarily the liquidity availability um, against USD pairs because we're lending USD. So we like to see at least uh, $100 million of daily traded volume against any asset. Um, we're sensitive to the risk of an asset being deemed a security because that would mean there would be a few different things we need to do on our end as a, as a lender against securities from a compliance perspective. Um, and then we're looking for customer demand. You know, Are there individuals or companies out there who would want to borrow against these assets? So, okay. So now let's say you've got, say you, you know, you borrowed 50% at nine and a half percent, which is starting to get, by the way, it's looking more and more attractive, right? Um, uh, for potential borrowers. Um, say, say you borrow at 50% loan to value and there, you, you, there is a potential for a margin call there. Can you talk about how that works exactly? Yeah, sure. So if the, uh, if the price falls and the LTV increases from 50% to 70%, we have a margin call. The way the margin call works is there's a 72-hour window where our clients have a couple of options. They can either add in more Bitcoin as collateral to bring that loan-to-value ratio down. They can pay down some of the principal that they've borrowed using USD or Bitcoin or other crypto assets, or they can take no action. And if they take no action, 
at the end of the 72 hour window, if the Bitcoin price hasn't recovered on its own, we will initiate a partial collateral sale and use the proceeds from that partial collateral sale to pay down some of the loan principal and rebalance the loan to value ratio back to 50%. So that go, that happens that you said 70%, right? 70% Correct. is basically what your, you know, what your cushion is once you get that initial loan. Tell me a little bit about who your who are the customers? Who are taking these collateralized loans right now? Are they primarily you know, are they primarily corporate, uh, institutional, or you know, big money, or is it is it individuals or both or what? Yeah, so it's both individuals and uh, companies. We've kind of got a classic uh, 80-20 split right now, where eighty uh, percent of our customers are individuals. If you look at it on a per customer basis, but eighty percent of the volume is corporate because the sizes are larger, um, and we see a bit different use case depending on the loan size. So, for example, for loan amounts below $25,000, we see use cases of paying down other higher cost debt pretty frequently. But once you get above $25,000, it becomes more of a uh, wealth management tool. So it's frequently individuals or companies that have held crypto for a long time. They have an embedded capital gain. They're being thoughtful around optimizing uh, tax costs. And they're also still bullish on the future uh, potential performance of these assets. Um, So they'll borrow some money rather than sell the assets to generate liquidity. And then they'll use the proceeds from the loan to make investments. And the most frequent type of investment that we see uh, is real estate related, either as a down payment for a primary home or purchasing investment properties. But we also see use cases where it's uh, more traditional investments like stocks and, and bonds. Um, and then on the corporate side, if you go even larger on the, on the ticket size up above, you know, 200, 300,000, it's frequently used to purchase hardware for, uh, crypto mining organizations or to cover general operating expenses, payroll costs, uh, et cetera. Right. Interesting. What do you think the average loan is right now? How was, you know, size or number of Bitcoin rather? Uh, our average loan size is right around a hundred thousand today. Okay. Interesting. But there's a bit of a barbell. You know, we do a lot of loans at you know ten thousand dollars or lower. We'll go as low as a two thousand dollar loan, um, and then we have some loans that are in the the seven figures. So yeah, and the interest it's rates the same. And the, and the interest rates the same, right now, for those different. Do you see that changing at all? Just because presumably yeah. there's some. I think it will start to get. We we will update our pricing by size over time. So right now, for simplicity, we're charging a. A single rate, but I think it'll start to look like uh, securities back lending. So if you look at the rates on E Trade, for example, to borrow against a portfolio of stocks, it ranges from seven percent for accounts of a million dollars or more, all the way up to about ten and a half percent for accounts of ten thousand dollars or yeah. less. And we'll yeah. probably have a similar approach. Yeah. Uh, block- are you right now? Are you just in? Are you just in the U.S.? Are you in all states? Are you? Are you international as well? Yeah, great question. Right now, we're in 46 states uh, in the U.S. Um, We are expanding to Canada imminently. uh, And then we are expanding into Europe in the first half of next year. Um, And other markets are kind of TBD in terms of the exact timing. But one thing that surprised us a little bit was that 50% of our applications, uh, as far back as, you know, three months ago, when we announced the funding from Galaxy, 
were coming from outside the U.S. market with no, uh, you know, no marketing outside the U.S. Uh, being done on our part. So, you know, crypto truly is a global story. We're seeing that in terms of the data from our site visitors and loan applications. And uh, we want to meet that demand. And one of the exciting things there is that if you think about that nine and a half percent interest rate to a lot of people in the U.S., that's not that attractive. Um, but as an interest rate in an emerging market, it's incredibly attractive. And really? what asset can someone in you know, Argentina, for example, uh, buy that can be financed from New York at an interest rate below 10%? And do they even have access to debt at such a low cost? And so that we get really excited about the international expansion that, uh, that we're working on yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty, uh, I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, in general with crypto, uh, especially in these countries with, you know, unstable fiat currencies and all that. It's a great opportunity. So let me t let me ask you this. We're um, in terms of the mechanics of the, you know, when when you get into Bitcoin, you know, one of the questions or any of the digital assets, you, you, you know, the question of, you know, where is this going to be stored? How is it going to be held? You know, what kind of security is there? Is it insured? Um, certainly those are some of the things that come to my mind. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. We decided really early on that we did not want to store these assets ourselves. We didn't think that was the value proposition that we were bringing to the market. And, uh, you know, we weren't particularly excited about having security guards outside our office or having to worry about being kidnapped. So we custody all of our, uh, assets right now via a partnership with Gemini, um, Gemini is a trust company uh, regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services. They have a um, robust cold storage system that custodies billions of dollars of crypto assets. And they also have insurance That's right. uh, on any of the assets that are not kept in cold storage. Yeah. Um, so, so we partnered with them and uh, you know, they do the hard work of making sure that uh, all the assets are held safely. That's huge, right? I mean, Gemini. That ins the insurance part of that is relatively recent, and then they've got the uh, FDIC protection on their their uh, U.S. dollar token as well. So uh, they're doing a lot of good things. Now, let me ask you also here. Obviously, we mentioned before that you know uh, BlockFi is certainly one of the players in the market. There are some others um, that are probably less. Uh, maybe less established, maybe don't have quite the gravitas in terms of the backing. But for example, in, in the crypto space, you've got Salt, um, Ethland. There's a new one, relatively new one called Nexo. How is BlockFi different? Yeah, so I think from a customer perspective, uh, two things that are that are probably the most important. One is um, the rate that we charge, as far as we know, is is the best rate that's available out there. And we intend to always have the most competitive rates for borrowers in the markets that uh, that we're addressing. And then secondarily, um, regardless of how much you use blockchain technology with these transactions, there's an element of trust involved. Ultimately, our clients are sending more money to us than we're lending to them on day one. And um, the structures that we have in place and the institutional backing that we have provide for layers of protection that uh, may or may not be available with some other lenders. One of them you already touched on, on the security side. Another one is really a legal construct that exists when you raise institutional funding and it's, it's called a bankruptcy remote structure. Basically what that means is, is that uh, if something were to happen to BlockFi the company uh, and we went out of business, um, we have protections in place on our platform to ensure that 
uh, all of our loan agreements would be held to, everybody's collateral would be returned, and the terms of their loans would uh, continue to operate even if BlockFi stopped existing. And that's a level of protection that I'm not sure that many other platforms have in place yet. Yeah, I, I don't know of any actually who have any of those things, which is, I think, what's really compelling about what you're doing. I mean, there's certainly good ideas, right? But I mean, um, it's it's certainly for somebody like me, and I think some of our listeners who are used to a little bit more security, they may not be the most appealing. And and, and, the, and some of their, uh, their interfaces are really complex, too. I, I, you'd probably... Probably yeah. just me. I mean, another big difference, uh, at least from the names that you mentioned, is uh, they all did an ICO. Right. And so they all have a utility token, which basically means, you know, on top of needing to understand how an asset backed loan against cryptocurrency works and the different mechanics and terms associated with it, they also had to find a way to put a utility token into the business model. So, Sometimes they use the token as, as a currency that you have to pay them back in or you can get a discount or you have to become a member. And it just kind of mucks up the customer experience a little bit. And our belief was that that was completely unnecessary for yeah. uh, a lending business. And so we don't have one. And that just makes it a little bit more straightforward and, and familiar um, in terms of what people have seen with traditional financial services. Now, with your with your platform in particular, is there a way to be... Uh, for for a customer customer to actually be on the lending side today, there's not, but we're we're working on uh, structures that will enable that, um, and we're working on structures that will enable that both from a USD perspective, which will launch first, but then also from a crypto perspective. So uh, you'll see news coming out from us in the in the next. Uh, few months on the new on the USD side and probably the next six months on the crypto side where we will enable people to act as lenders not in a you know funding specific loans construct but more in a if you want to participate in some of the cash flows there will be mechanisms to do that and so similar to uh, you know uh, some of the real estate platforms we yeah, were talking about exactly. fundrise you can you can put USD to work on the fundrise platform and get an eight percent return blockfi will have a similar option that's available to uh to investors do you think the the rates will be somewhat in, uh, similar to that like around that eight percent or is that something you're still yeah, thinking about i think it, we don't have, we, it's hard to say the exact number now but i think it'll be in the five to nine range yeah cool very cool and again that's something i think is going to be uh really interesting and we may want to get you back when you when you actually have that because we certainly have a lot of people who love cash flow and that's a big part of it. And there's also something I read about that you guys were looking into the uh, other product suites such as like credit cards and stuff. How would that work? Is it basically collateralized credit cards or what? Yeah, so uh, the plan is that we'll actually have two different types of cards. Um, one that's an unsecured credit card where you can earn instead of cash back, you can earn Bitcoin cash back. Oh, wow. Um, we think that'll be interesting, not only to people that already have an affinity to Bitcoin, but also potentially to people that are, are Bitcoin curious, but can't really convince themselves <laughs> to pull the trigger and, you know, invest money in it. Yeah. But if they could just, uh, if they could just generate that by, you know, getting Bitcoin cash back instead of Amex points or Chase Sapphire points, that maybe that's a leap that they could take. Um, and in the U.S. market, uh, that will probably be the primary offering. And then, um, in markets outside the U.S., it will be a secured credit card where it's basically a, a similar construct to our loan, except the delivery mechanism for getting access to that USD liquidity will be via 
the credit card instead of via you know a wire to a bank account. Any other products that we should know about that that might be on the horizon? And obviously, lots of different you know things that you could do with this. No, those are the biggest ones. I mean, the other big focus for us is uh, just integrating the functionality into other parts of the ecosystem to make it more accessible. So if, you know, someone has a preferred custodian that they already keep their Bitcoin with, we want them to be able to receive liquidity in the form of a loan from BlockFi without having to disrupt that experience that they already know and and prefer. Uh, So you'll see some announcements in the future about uh, our platform being integrated into, uh, you know, other parts of the ecosystem, which, uh, which we're also excited about. What do you think is going to happen in 2019? Let's go back to, you know, crypto in general. I mean, you you follow this stuff and I know you've got a business here and and everything, but you know, you you're you're in the community, you're following what's going on. There's a lot of big movements from institutional players. I'm curious to just kind of get, you know, everybody I I have on the show, I always try to get their, you know, what their pulse on what's going on uh is. I mean, one of the things that specifically that's on my mind right now is you've got so many announcements, you know, you have Bakht, now it's December 12th or something like that. And then you've got, you know, Fidelity getting in the game. You got, you know, you got, you've got so much bullish information yet last week, as you mentioned, the stability of Bitcoin actually was more stable than Amazon stock over the last week. So what's going on? Yeah, it's a really interesting time. Uh, some of the investors that uh, that we work with have, you know, traditional financial services businesses, and so there may be you know ninety five percent public equities and five percent uh, crypto, for example. And uh, I've been joking with them that they can't do anything on the crypto side because public equities are more volatile now. <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, I think that uh, I think that price will catch up to the developments that we've seen in the ecosystem in 2019. And that means, you know, that we're, we're bullish on the value of Bitcoin and Ether and other kind of uh, tier one uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, and, you know, I think that if you, if you take like November to January, just out of the chart, yeah, that's more reflective of, of what's actually happening. If you look at the building that's going on behind the scenes and the accessibility and the use cases and the value proposition for uh, these assets. And so, you know, overall, we're, we're bullish. I think you'll see both more investment products available that make sense for institutions, that make sense for retail, and also more real world use cases, um, payments, remittances, uh, you know, just general spending or uh, accessibility at the retail level in emerging markets. Um, there are countless solutions being uh, built to address all of these things, and adoption is increasing. Um, price just hasn't really uh, reflected it, uh, you know, over the last uh, six months or so. But it, but but that'll change. Yeah. I agree. Well, listen, Zach, it's been great having you on uh, the site again. Uh, the business is BlockFi. Uh, you can find it at BlockFi.com. That's BlockFi.com. Check it out. Um, and I'm glad to see that you're now lending in California, which is where I am. And uh, I'll be uh, I'll be checking it out as those rates drop myself a little bit. Thanks again for being on today. Thanks for having me, Buck. Keep up the great work, man. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? 
Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show. I know Zach Prince is a very, very smart guy, and, and it was a really fun interview to do. Let's talk about this lending thing and how you can use it. Because, you know, I do have this other podcast called Wealth Formula Podcast, and we talk about loans and the advantages of these types of things all the time. But let's talk about how I, I think of this thing uh, is, is sort of a hedge uh, when you're investing with Bitcoin. Let me give you an example of how I think this could be really neat for some of you who are out there holding and not wanting to really um, want, wanting to sell. So say you bought Bitcoin at $6,000, okay? It's around 6000 6300 right now, and it goes up to 12000 Now, you could cash out, right? You could cash out, but then you'd have to pay capital gains taxes on $6,000, and you'd also miss out on the potential that that Bitcoin is going to go even higher in value. But instead, what you could do using a company like, like Zach's company is you could borrow $6,000 because that's basically your you know, 50% that you're allowed to borrow. You could borrow that and you could invest it in something else that cash flows, right? If you're interested in knowing more about things you could invest for cash flow, again, go to Wealth formula podcast because we talk about that stuff all the time okay now let's say you've you know bought into some real estate or whatever with some of the money and it's cash flowing the loans themselves would get paid down from the rents or dividends or whatever you're getting on a monthly basis and then you might have a little extra but in the meantime you are essentially accumulating wealth in two places at the same time because you still own your bitcoin and then now you've bought something else with it and you're making money in two different places. That is what I call the velocity of money. And it's one of the key principles of wealth creation is basically just recycling capital to use it into different things to make money in multiple places at the same time. Now, finally, in this example, if Bitcoin were to, say, go back down to 6000 and you had this debt, uh, you might have a, a capital call or something at that point to, to cover that margin. So at this point, you have a couple of choices. You could, you know, if you felt like, you know, Bitcoin was going to bottom out or whatever, you could at that point, you know, uh, buy more Bitcoin. But you could also just let nature take its course and say, listen, you guys can sell off this Bitcoin as you need to to keep this leverage. I'm going to just keep my other position in this other investment you know, while you do that and see where Bitcoin lands, right? Because the beauty of a collateralized loan like this is that you're not on the hook for anything other than the Bitcoin that you have in there. So if Bitcoin is crashing, in a way, it's it's great because you've hedged that position into a completely different investment. Well, hopefully that wasn't too convoluted, convoluted and confusing, but suffice it to say, I think it is a uh, really interesting play and one that I'm likely to use myself. I was just actually thinking about some of the different options I had because I am a hodler. Let's get on with some questions, but let me answer a question for you myself because I've used the word hodler a couple times. And I just realized I just kind of picked that up 
from this whole cryptocurrency world, and I, I know what it means, but I don't know. I, I was thinking, why do they say HODL? H-O-D-L, right? Well, so obviously, it, you know, it's slang in cryptocurrency world for holding, right? Rather than just, you know, trying to trade or sell or whatever. You're just going to buy stuff and hold it. So apparently, HODL thing originated back in 2013. There was a post on a Bitcoin forum a message board by an apparently uh, inebriated user who posted a, a, with a typo in the subject, I am hodling. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that kind of took off. And so because some drunk user was saying hodling, now everybody says hodling. Um, people have also since then said that it, it, it means uh, hold on for dear life. But, uh, but apparently the the uh, drunk version is the original version, and one I think is actually probably more funny and uh, probably true. So, uh, okay, just a couple of questions here. And may I remind you that you um, definitely should leave me some questions. Uh, I prefer the voicemail, but people don't seem to be wanting to do that. You can go to consensusnetwork.io and leave a voicemail question, etc. You could do that. You could also uh, write a question out uh, there, or you could just email me at info at consensusnetwork.io. Again, that's info at consensusnetwork.io. From there, uh, we will take it to the show. So let's get on with the first question. The first question is from Seth. Is there a way to invest in uh, cryptocurrency if you are really bad with computers? Now, I actually know who Seth is, and I know what he's getting at. Ironically, or maybe not, because I knew this question was here and I knew what we were playing on the other podcast. If you go to Wealth Formula Podcast, actually this week, you will see an interview with Hunter Horsley from Bitwise Management. This was a really interesting interview. So basically what Bitwise does is um, they, uh, they are a company that has these index sort of baskets of cryptocurrencies and effectively they use um, the top 10 cryptocurrencies and that represents about 80 percent of the entire market cap and they let you invest in that just like you invest in you know any other fund and that allows you and you don't have to have any technological savvy or understanding at all in that case all you're doing is you are uh, tracking the top 10 cryptocurrencies and you know what you're really doing is is buying the movement of the market capitalization if we're sitting at about 200 billion now and you know we go to a trillion well you're gonna you know the top 10 currencies by market capitalization are going to be you know a big part of that movement right so you're you're effectively buying the market the downside is for those of you who are are not accredited investors you can't you can't participate this is only for accredited investor. Now, what is an accredited investor? An accredited investor is somebody who either makes $200,000 a year or $300,000 uh, per year if you're filing jointly or have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. You don't have to apply for anything. You just either are or you aren't. Now, I know you. I've gotten emails from a few people who have a lot of Bitcoin, if you have a million dollars of Bitcoin, you are an accredited investor, regardless of how much you make right now. So, um, you know, if you wanted to invest in that, which I mean, I'm assuming if you have a million dollars of Bitcoin from something you did a long time ago, you're 
plenty technically savvy, technically savvy, so you don't have to do anything like that. But that that would be another consideration. But for especially for people who really like what they're hearing, but they're just intimidated by the tech. This is um, I would go check that podcast out with Hunter Horsley at Wealth Formula Podcast. And finally, I also point out that if you're an accredited investor, that is a great show uh, for you to be listening to, even though it's not about cryptocurrency necessarily. Uh, second question is from Phil. Um, so many people still say Bitcoin is going to zero. I'm guessing from your podcast that you do not. What makes you so sure? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about anything, really. I'm not sure... If uh, <clears throat> a meteor will hit the earth, I'm not sure if, you know, I don't, I don't know when the next, uh, you know, San Francisco earthquake is. I'm not sure really. But I think what you can do is you can, you can start looking at the big picture and understanding um, what's happening around us and, um, and figure out whether it, it, at what point it's more likely that it does not go to zero then it does go to zero. Probably if you uh, if you asked me three years ago, I would have said, yeah, Bitcoin's going to zero. But I also didn't know anything about Bitcoin. And I would have been like everybody else who's just an automatic cynic. But if you look at what's going around us right now, so uh, we are in uh, November, I think, uh, Bakht, that um, was owned by the same... Um, owners in New York Stock Exchange is releasing, I believe, this year. Uh, you've also got a number of other major uh, financial players involved. You've got Goldman Sachs, and you've got, you know, big university endowments. You've got all sorts of, you know, traditional smart money coming into the space. Bitcoin, in particular, is uh, makes up right now over fifty percent of the entire market capitalization. Bitcoin is um, different than everything else right now, in my opinion. Bitcoin is is been accepted by m a lot of the mainstream financial industry, and so does that mean it'll be here forever? That it will be, you know, it, that it won't go to zero in you know twenty, thirty years or something like that? Because there's something else or whatever. No, it doesn't. But what I can tell you is that. In the short term, and what I mean by short term is the next five to ten years, I think the likelihood of Bitcoin going to zero is approximately zero. But again, that is my opinion, and um, you know there certainly will be volatility. Um, but I think uh, if you, if I had to bet, is Bitcoin more likely in ten years to be two dollars or two hundred thousand dollars? I think at two hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin is more likely. So hopefully that answers your question, but you can never be sure. And then uh, the next question is from uh, Madeline. Why is Ethereum price so low? It seems like it got uh, hit harder than anything else out there. It's a good question. I don't know for sure. I can tell you that Ethereum has a lot of challenges. Right now they have some issues with uh, the ability to scale. Um, they have to, they're going to have to do some, um, updates to their software so that they can keep up with, you know, some of the other up and coming protocols out there. I think they know that. I think if they don't do that, I think they're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're just going to die. Um, but I think the price in particular has to do with a lot of other things. And, uh, in particular, one theory that's been out there is, um, that, uh, you know, 
Ethereum was used for a lot of these ICOs, right? People were raising money for their projects using Ethereum. And um, one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest uh, ICOs was EOS. And EOS is a major competitor to Ethereum. And EOS did this, um, you know, I, ICO, I think it was like four, it ended up being like $4 billion or something. It's a crazy amount of money that just lasted for, you know, an extended period of time. It was over a year. And so a lot of people think that it's from EOS dumping uh, Ethereum. Because if you imagine all these projects, if you think about all these projects that are out there that did ICOs and raised a bunch of money with Ethereum, I think the last thing they want to do is see the money that they raised continue to dwindle. So I think that's a big, that, in my opinion, from what I'm reading, that that's a big part of it. I do think that Ethereum is, you know, got a really strong community. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's, again, it has that, uh, it does have the advantage of being one of the first players in town, particularly for the, um, you know, smart contracts and, and, um, some of the broader applications of distributed ledger technology. And I think they have a strong community. And if those developers can get it together and, and, you know, produce something that can scale, I think it's, uh, still, still probably the odds on favorite, um, you know, in the space to, to serve that purpose. Uh, but right now price, I don't know, man, I, there's a, price on everything I'm looking and scratching my head and wondering when it's going to go up. I mean, we keep talking about all this great news and I'm just trying to figure out when does the, when does the price catch up with the news? Uh, and of course, last week you actually heard uh, Tyler Jenks saying that, you know, he thought before we go to 500,000, we're going to go down to like 2000 in Bitcoin. Well, I hope it doesn't happen, but I mean, geez, you just have to believe in the long run here these projects. And if you do that, you just are a hodler, just like me. So anyway, that is it for me this week uh, on Consensus Network. Just a reminder, uh, before we go here, um, make sure to send those questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you on Consensus Network. Uh, just shoot those emails over at to info at consensusnetwork.io. And we'd love to read your questions or your comments on air. That's it for me this week on Consensus Network. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.